Section 5 of Winsome Winnie and Other New Nonsense Novels. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Winsome Winnie and Other New Nonsense Novels by Stephen Leacock. Section 5 Broken Barriers or Red Love on a Blue Island. The kind of thing that has replaced the good old sea story. It was on a bright August afternoon that I stepped on board the steamer Patagonia at Southampton, outward bound for the West Indies and the port of New Orleans. I had at the time no presentiment of disaster. I remember remarking to the ship's purser, as my things were being carried to my stateroom, that I had never in all my travels entered upon any voyage with so little premonition of accident. Very good, Mr. Boris, he answered. You will find your stateroom in the starboard aisle on the right. I distinctly recall remarking to the captain that I had never, in any of my numerous seafarings, seen the sea of a more limpid blue. He agreed with me so entirely, as I recollect it, that he did not even trouble to answer. Had anyone told me on that bright summer afternoon that our ship would, within a week, be wrecked among the dry tortugas, I should have laughed. Had anyone informed me that I should find myself alone on a raft in the Caribbean Sea, I should have gone into hysterics. We had hardly entered the waters of the Caribbean when a storm of unprecedented violence broke upon us. Even the captain had never, so he said, seen anything to compare with it. For two days and nights we encountered and endured the full fury of the sea. Our soup plates were secured with racks and covered with lids. In the smoking-room our glasses had to be set in brackets, and as our steward came and went, we were from moment to moment in imminent danger of seeing him washed overboard. On the third morning, just after daybreak, the ship collided with something, probably either a floating rock or one of the dry tortugas. She blew out her four funnels, the bowsprit dropped out of its place, and the propeller came right off. The captain, after a brief consultation, decided to abandon her. The boats were lowered, and, the sea being now quite calm, the passengers were emptied into them. By what accident I was left behind I cannot tell. I had been talking to the second mate and telling him of a rather similar experience of mine in the China Sea, and holding him by the coat as I did so, when quite suddenly he took me by the shoulders, and rushing me into the deserted smoking-room said, Sit here, Mr. Boris, till I come back for you. The fellow spoke in such a menacing way that I thought it wiser to comply. When I came out, they were all gone. By good fortune, I found one of the ship's rafts still lying on the deck. I gathered together such articles as might be of use, and contrived, though how I do not know, to launch it into the sea. On my second morning in my raft, I was sitting quietly polishing my boots and talking to myself when I became aware of an object floating in the sea close beside the raft judge of my feelings when I realized it to be the inanimate body of a girl. Hastily finishing my boots and stopping talking to myself, I made shift as best I could to draw the unhappy girl towards me with a hook. After several ineffectual attempts, I at last managed to obtain a hold of the girl's clothing and drew her onto the raft. She was still unconscious. The heavy life-belt round her person must, so I divined, have kept her afloat after the wreck. Her clothes were sodden, so I reasoned, with the sea-water. 
On a handkerchief, which was still sticking into the belt of her dress, I could see letters embroidered. Realizing that this was no time for hesitation, and that the girl's life might depend on my reading her name, I plucked it forth. It was Edith Croydon. As vigorously as I could, I now set to work to rub her hands. My idea was, partly, to restore her circulation. I next removed her boots, which were now rendered useless, as I argued, by the seawater, and began to rub her feet. I was just considering what to remove next, when the girl opened her eyes. "'Stop rubbing my feet,' she said. "'Miss Croydon,' I said, "'you mistake me.' I rose with a sense of pique which I did not trouble to conceal, and walked to the other end of the raft. I turned my back upon the girl, and stood looking out upon the leaden waters of the Caribbean Sea. The ocean was now calm. There was nothing in sight. I was still searching the horizon when I heard a soft footstep on the raft behind me, and a light hand was laid upon my shoulder. "'Forgive me,' said the girl's voice. I turned about. Miss Croydon was standing behind me. She had, so I argued, removed her stockings and was standing in her bare feet. There is something, I am free to confess, about a woman in her bare feet which hits me where I live. With instinctive feminine taste, the girl had twined a piece of seaweed in her hair. Seaweed, as a rule, gets me every time. But I checked myself. Miss Croydon, I said, there is nothing to forgive. At the mention of her name, the girl blushed for a moment and seemed about to say something, but stopped. Where are we? she queried presently. I don't know, I answered, as cheerily as I could, but I am going to find out. How brave you are, Miss Croydon exclaimed. Not at all, I said, putting as much heartiness into my voice as I was able to. The girl watched my preparations with interest. With the aid of a bent pin hoisted on a long pole, I had no difficulty in ascertaining our latitude. Miss Croydon, I said, I am now about to ascertain our longitude. To do this I must lower myself down into the sea. Pray do not be alarmed or anxious. I shall soon be back. With the help of a long line I lowered myself deep down into the sea until I was enabled to ascertain, approximately at any rate, our longitude. A fierce thrill went through me at the thought that this longitude was our longitude, hers and mine. On the way up, hand over hand, I observed a long shark looking at me. Realizing that the fellow, if voracious, might prove dangerous, I lost but little time, indeed I may say I lost absolutely no time, in coming up the rope. The girl was waiting for me. Oh, I am so glad you have come back, she exclaimed, clasping her hands. It was nothing, I said, wiping the water from my ears, and speaking as melodiously as I could. Have you found our whereabouts? she asked. Yes, I answered. Our latitude is normal, but our longitude is, I fear, at least three degrees out of the plum. I am afraid, Miss Croydon, I added, speaking as mournfully as I know how, that you must reconcile your mind to spending a few days with me on this raft. Is it as bad as that? she murmured, her eyes upon the sea. In the long day that followed, I busied myself as much as I could with my work upon the raft, so as to leave the girl as far as possible to herself. It was, so I argued, absolutely necessary to let her feel that she was safe in my keeping. 
otherwise she might jump off the raft and I should lose her. I sorted out my various cans and tins, tested the oil in my chronometer, arranged in neat order my various ropes and apparatus, and got my frying pan into readiness for any emergency. Of food we had for the present no lack. With the approach of night I realized that it was necessary to make arrangements for the girl's comfort. With the aid of a couple of upright poles, I stretched a gray blanket across the raft so as to make a complete partition. Miss Croydon, I said, this end of the raft is yours. Here you may sleep in peace. How kind you are, the girl murmured. You will be quite safe from interference, I said. I give you my word that I will not obtrude upon you in any way. How chivalrous you are, she said. Not at all, I answered as musically as I could. Understand me, I am now putting my head over this partition for the last time. If there is anything you want, say so now. Nothing, she answered. There is a candle and matches beside you. If there is anything that you want in the night, call me instantly. Remember, at any hour I shall be here. I promise it. Good night, she murmured. In a few minutes her soft regular breathing told me that she was asleep. I went forward and seated myself in a tar-bucket, with my head against the mast, to get what sleep I could. But for some time, why, I do not know, sleep would not come. The image of Edith Croydon filled my mind. In vain I told myself that she was a stranger to me, that, beyond her longitude, I knew nothing of her. In some strange way this girl had seized hold of me and dominated my senses. The night was very calm and still, with great stars in a velvet sky. In the darkness I could hear the water lapping the edge of the raft. I remained thus in deep thought, sinking further and further into the tar-bucket. By the time I reached the bottom of it, I realized that I was in love with Edith Croydon. Then the thought of my wife occurred to me and perplexed me. Our unhappy marriage had taken place three years before. We brought to one another youth, wealth, and position. Yet our marriage was a failure. My wife, for what reason I cannot guess, seemed to find my society irksome. In vain I tried to interest her with narratives of my travels. They seemed, in some way that I could not divine, to fatigue her. Leave me for a little, Harold, she would say. I forgot to mention that my name is Harold Boris. I have a pain in my neck. At her own suggestion I had taken a trip around the world. On my return she urged me to go round again. I was going round for the third time when the wrecking of the steamer had interrupted my trip. On my own part, too, I am free to confess that my wife's attitude had roused in me a sense of pique, not to say injustice. I am not in any way a vain man. Yet her attitude wounded me. I would no sooner begin. When I was in the Himalayas hunting the humpo or humped buffalo, then she would interrupt and say, Oh, Harold, would you mind going down to the billiard room and seeing if I left my cigarettes under the billiard table? When I returned she was gone. By agreement we had arranged for a divorce. On my completion of my third voyage we were to meet in New Orleans. Clara was to go there on a separate ship, giving me the choice of oceans. Had I met Edith Croydon three months later, I should have been a man free to woo and win her. As it was, I was bound. 
I must put a clasp of iron on my feelings. I must wear a mask. Cheerful, helpful, and full of narrative, I must yet let fall no word of love to this defenseless girl. After a great struggle, I rose at last from the tar-bucket, feeling, if not a brighter, at least a cleaner man. Dawn was already breaking. I looked about me. As the sudden beams of the tropic sun illuminated the placid sea, I saw immediately before me, only a hundred yards away, an island. A sandy beach sloped back to a rocky eminence, broken with scrub and jungle. I could see a little stream leaping among the rocks. With eager haste I paddled the raft close to the shore, till it ground in about ten inches of water. I leaped into the water. With the aid of a stout line, I soon made the raft fast to a rock. Then as I turned, I saw that Miss Croydon was standing upon the raft, fully dressed and gazing at me. The morning sunlight played in her hair, and her deep blue eyes were as soft as the Caribbean Sea itself. "'Don't attempt to wade ashore, Miss Croydon,' I cried in agitation. "'Pray do nothing rash. The waters are simply infested with bacilli.' "'But how can I get ashore?' she asked, with a smile which showed all, or nearly all, of her pearl-like teeth. "'Miss Croydon,' I said, "'there is only one way. I must carry you.' In another moment I had walked back to the raft and lifted her as tenderly and reverently as if she had been my sister, indeed more so, in my arms. Her weight seemed nothing. When I get a girl like that in my arms, I simply don't feel it. Just for one moment, as I clasped her thus in my arms, a fierce thrill ran through me, but I let it run. When I had carried her well up the sand close to the little stream, I set her down. To my surprise, she sank down in a limp heap. The girl had fainted. I knew that it was no time for hesitation. Running to the stream, I filled my hat with water and dashed it in her face. Then I took up a handful of mud and threw it at her with all my force. After that I beat her with my hat. At length she opened her eyes and sat up. I must have fainted, she said with a little shiver. I am cold. Oh, if we could only have a fire. I will do my best to make one, Miss Croydon, I replied, speaking as gymnastically as I could. I will see what I can do with two dry sticks. With dry sticks? queried the girl. Can you light a fire with that? How wonderful you are! I have often seen it done, I replied thoughtfully, when I was hunting the humpo or humped buffalo in the Himalayas. It was our usual method. Have you really hunted the humpo? she asked, her eyes large with interest. I have indeed, I said, but you must rest. Later on I will tell you about it. I wish you could tell me now, she said with a little moan. Meantime I had managed to select from the driftwood on the beach two sticks that seemed absolutely dry. Placing them carefully together, in Indian fashion, I then struck a match and found no difficulty in setting them on fire. In a few moments the girl was warming herself beside a generous fire. Together we breakfasted upon the beach beside the fire, discussing our plans like comrades. Our meal over, I rose. I will leave you here a little, I said, while I explore. With no great difficulty, I made my way through the scrub and climbed the eminence of tumbled rocks that shut in the view. 
On my return, Miss Croydon was still seated by the fire, her head in her hands. Miss Croydon, I said, we are on an island. Is it inhabited? she asked. Once, perhaps, but not now. It is one of the many keys of the West Indies. Here, in old buccaneering days, the pirates landed and careened their ships. How did they do that? she asked, fascinated. I am not sure, I answered. I think with whitewash. At any rate, they gave them a good careening. But since then, these solitudes are only the home of the seagull, the sea-mew, and the albatross. The girl shuddered. How lonely, she said. Lonely or not, I said with a laugh. Luckily I can speak with a laugh when I want to. I must get to work. I set myself to work to haul up and arrange our effects. With a few stones I made a rude table and seats. I took care to laugh and sing as much as possible while at my work. The close of the day found me still busy with my labors. Miss Croydon, I said, I must now arrange a place for you to sleep. With the aid of four stakes driven deeply into the ground, and with blankets strung upon them, I managed to fashion a sort of rude tent, roofless but otherwise quite sheltered. Miss Croydon, I said when all was done, go in there. Then, with little straps which I had fastened to the blankets, I buckled her in reverently. Good night, Miss Croydon, I said. But you, she exclaimed, where will you sleep? Oh, I, I answered, speaking as exuberantly as I could, I shall do very well on the ground, but be sure to call me at the slightest sound. Then I went out and lay down in a patch of cactus plants. I need not dwell in detail upon the busy and arduous days that followed our landing upon the island. I had much to do. Each morning I took our latitude and longitude. By this I then set my watch, cooked porridge, and picked flowers till Miss Croydon appeared. With every day the girl came forth from her habitation as a new surprise in her radiant beauty. One morning she had bound a cluster of wild arbutus about her brow. Another day she had twisted a band of convolvulus around her waist. On a third she had wound herself up in a mat of bulrushes. With her bare feet and wild bulrushes all around her, she looked as a cave woman might have looked, her eyes radiant with the Caribbean dawn. My whole frame thrilled at the sight of her. At times it was all I could do not to tear the bulrushes off her and beat her with the heads of them. But I schooled myself to restraint and handed her a rock to sit upon and passed her her porridge on the end of a shovel with the calm politeness of a friend. Our breakfast over, my more serious labors of the day began. I busied myself with hauling rocks or boulders along the sand to build us a house against the rainy season. With some tackle from the raft, I made myself a set of harness, by means of which I hitched myself to a boulder. By getting Miss Croydon to beat me over the back with a stick, I found that I made fair progress. But even as I worked thus for our common comfort, my mind was fiercely filled with the thought of Edith Croydon. I knew that if once the barriers broke, everything would be swept away. Heaven alone knows the effort that it cost me. At times nothing but the sternest resolution could hold my fierce impulses in check. Once I came upon the girl writing in the sand with a stick. I looked to see what she had written. I read my own name, Harold. With a wild cry, I leapt into the sea and dived to the bottom of it.
When I came up I was calmer. Edith came towards me. All dripping as I was, she placed her hands upon my shoulders. "'How grand you are!' she said. "'I am,' I answered. Then I added, "'Miss Croydon, for heaven's sake don't touch me on the ear. I can't stand it.' I turned from her and looked out over the sea. Presently I heard something like a groan behind me. The girl had thrown herself on the sand and was coiled up in a hoop. "'Miss Croydon,' I said, "'for God's sake don't coil up in a hoop.' I rushed to the beach and rubbed gravel on my face. With such activities, alternated with wild bursts of restraint, our life on the island passed as rapidly as in a dream. Had I not taken care to notch the days upon a stick and then cover the stick with tar, I could not have known the passage of the time. The wearing out of our clothing had threatened a serious difficulty, but by good fortune I had seen a large black and white goat wandering among the rocks and had chased it to a standstill. From its skin, leaving the fur still on, Edith had fashioned us clothes. Our boots we had replaced with alligator hide. I had, by a lucky chance, found an alligator upon the beach, and attaching a string to the fellow's neck, I had led him to our camp. I had then poisoned the fellow with tinned salmon, and removed his hide. Our costume was now brought into harmony with our surroundings. For myself, garbed in goatskin with the hair outside, with alligator sandals on my feet, and with whiskers at least six inches long, I have no doubt that I resembled the beau ideal of a caveman. With the open-air life, a new agility seemed to have come into my limbs. With a single leap in my alligator sandals, I was enabled to spring into a coconut tree. As for Edith Croydon, I can only say that as she stood beside me on the beach in her suit of black goatskin, she had chosen the black spots, there were times when I felt like seizing her in the frenzy of my passion and hurling her into the sea. Fur always acts on me just like that. It was at the opening of the fifth week of our life upon the island that a new and more surprising turn was given to our adventure. It arose out of a certain curiosity, harmless enough, on Edith Croydon's part. Mr. Boris, she said one morning, I should like so much to see the rest of our island. Can we? Alas, Miss Croydon, I said, I fear there is but little to see. Our island, so far as I can judge, is merely one of the uninhabited keys of the West Indies. It is nothing but rock and sand and scrub. There is no life upon it. I fear, I added, speaking as jauntily as I could, that unless we are taken off it, we are destined to stay on it. Still, I should like to see it, she persisted. Come on, then, I answered. If you are good for a climb, we can take a look over the ridge of rocks where I went up on the first day. We made our way across the sand of the beach, among the rocks and through the close matted scrub, beyond which an eminence of rugged boulders shut out the further view. Making our way to the top of this, we obtained a wide look over the sea. The island stretched away to a considerable distance to the eastward, widening as it went, the complete view of it being shut off by similar and higher ridges of rock. But it was the nearer view, the foreground, that at once arrested our attention. Edith seized my arm. Look, oh, look, she said. Down just below us, on the right hand, was a similar beach to the one we had left. A rude hut had been erected on it, and various articles lay strewn about. 
seated on a rock with their backs towards us, were a man and a woman. The man was dressed in goatskins, and his whiskers, so I inferred from what I could see of them from the side, were at least as exuberant as mine. The woman was in white fur, with a fillet of seaweed round her head. They were sitting close together as if in earnest colloquy. "'Cave people,' whispered Edith. "'Aborigines of the island!' But I answered nothing. Something in the tall outline of the seated woman held my eye. A cruel presentiment stabbed me to the heart. In my agitation my foot overset a stone, which rolled noisily down the rocks. The noise attracted the attention of the two seated below us. They turned and looked searchingly towards the place where we were concealed. Their faces were in plain sight. As I looked at that of the woman, I felt my heart cease beating and the color leave my face. I looked into Edith's face. It was as pale as mine. "'What does it mean?' she whispered. "'Miss Croydon,' I answered. "'Edith, it means this. I have never found the courage to tell you. I am a married man. The woman seated there is my wife, and I love you.' Edith put out her arms with a low cry and clasped me about the neck. "'Harold,' she murmured, "'my Harold!' "'Have I done wrong?' I whispered. "'Only what I have done, too,' she answered. "'I, too, am married, Harold, and the man sitting there below, John Croydon, is my husband.' With a wild cry such as a caveman might have uttered, I had leapt to my feet. "'Your husband!' I shouted. "'Then, by the living God, he or I shall never leave this place alive.' He saw me coming as I bounded down the rocks. In an instant he had sprung to his feet. He gave no cry. He asked no question. He stood erect as a caveman would, waiting for his enemy. And there upon the sands beside the sea we fought, barehanded and weaponless. We fought as caveman fight. For a while we circled round each other, growling. We circled four times, each watching for an opportunity. Then I picked up a great handful of sand and threw it flap into his face. He grabbed a coconut and hit me with it in the stomach. Then I seized a twisted strand of wet seaweed and landed him with it behind the ear. For a moment he staggered. Before he could recover I jumped forward, seized him by the hair, slapped his face twice, and then leaped behind a rock. Looking from the side I could see that Croydon, though half-dazed, was feeling round for something to throw. To my horror I saw a great stone lying ready to his hand. Beside me was nothing. I gave myself up for lost, when at that very moment I heard Edith's voice behind me saying, The shovel! Quick! The shovel! The noble girl had rushed back to our encampment and had fetched me the shovel. Swat him with that! she cried. I seized the shovel, and with the roar of a wounded bull, or as near as I could make it, I rushed out from the rock, the shovel swinging over my head. But the fight was all out of Croydon. Don't strike, he said. I'm all in. I couldn't stand a crack with that kind of thing. He sat down upon the sand, limp. Seen thus, he somehow seemed to be quite a small man, not a caveman at all. His goatskin suit shrunk in on him. I could hear his pants as he sat. I surrender, he said. Take both the women. They are yours. I stood over him, leaning upon the shovel. The two women had closed in near to us. 
I suppose you are her husband, are you? Croydon went on. I nodded. I thought you were. Take her. Meantime, Clara had drawn near to me. She looked somehow very beautiful with her golden hair in the sunlight and the white furs draped about her. Harold! she exclaimed. Harold, is it you? How strange and masterful you look! I didn't know you were so strong. I turned sternly towards her. When I was alone, I said, on the Himalayas hunting the humpo or humped buffalo, Clara clasped her hands, looking into my face. Yes, she said, tell me about it. Meantime I could see that Edith had gone over to John Croydon. John, she said, you shouldn't sit in the wet sand like that. You'll get a chill. Let me help you to get up. I looked at Clara and at Croydon. How has this happened? I asked. Tell me. We were on the same ship, Croydon said. There came a great storm. Even the captain had never seen... I know, I interrupted. So had ours. The ship struck a rock and blew out her four funnels. Ours did too, I nodded. The bowsprit was broken, and the steward's pantry was carried away. The captain gave orders to leave the ship. It is enough, Croydon, I said. I see it all now. You were left behind when the boats cleared. By what accident you don't know. I don't, said Croydon. As best you could, you constructed a raft, and with such haste as you might, you placed on it such few things. Exactly, he said. A chronometer, a sextant. I know, I continued. Two quadrants, a bucket of water, and a lightning rod. I presume you picked up Clara floating in the sea. I did, Croydon said. She was unconscious when I got her, but by rubbing... Croydon, I said, raising the shovel again. Cut that out. I'm sorry, he said. It's all right, but you needn't go on. I see all the rest of your adventures plainly enough. Well, I'm done with it all, anyway, said Croydon gloomily. You can do what you like. As for me, I've got a decent suit back there at our camp, and I've got it dried and pressed, and I'm going to put it on. He rose wearily, Edith standing beside him. What's more, Boris, he said, I'll tell you something. This island is not uninhabited at all. Not uninhabited, exclaimed Clara and Edith together. I saw each of them give a rapid look at her goatskin suit. Nonsense, Croydon, I said. This island is one of the West Indian Keys. On such a key as this, the pirates used to land. Here they careened their ships. Did what to them? asked Croydon. Careened them all over from one end to the other, I said. Here they got water and buried treasure. But beyond that, the island was, and remained, only the home of the wild gull and the sea mews. All right, said Croydon. Only it doesn't happen to be that kind of key. It's a West Indian island, all right, but there's a summer hotel on the other end of it, not two miles away. A summer hotel, we exclaimed. Yes, a hotel. I suspected it all along. I picked up a tennis racket on the beach the first day, and after that I walked over the ridge and through the jungle, and I could see the roof of the hotel. Only, he added rather shamefacedly, I didn't like to tell her. Oh, you coward, cried Clara. I could slap you. Don't you dare, said Edith. I'm sure you knew it as well as he did. And anyway, I was certain of it myself. 
I picked up a copy of last week's paper in a lunch basket on the beach and hid it from Mr. Boris. I didn't want to hurt his feelings. At that moment, Croydon pointed with a cry towards the sea. Look, he said, for heaven's sake, look. He turned. Less than a quarter of a mile away, we could see a large white motor launch coming round the corner. The deck was gay with awnings and bright dresses and parasols. Great heavens, said Croydon. I know that launch. It's the Appen Joneses. The Appen Joneses, cried Clara. Why, we know them too. Don't you remember, Harold, the Sunday we spent with them on the Hudson? Instinctively, we had all jumped for cover behind the rocks. Whatever shall we do? I exclaimed. We must get our things, said Edith Croydon. Jack, if your suit is ready, run and get it and stop the launch. Mrs. Boris and Mr. Boris and I can get our things straightened up while you keep them talking. My suit is nearly ready anyway. I thought someone might come. Mr. Boris, would you mind running and fetching me my things? They're all in a parcel together. And perhaps if you have a looking-glass and some pins, Mrs. Boris, I could come over and dress with you. That same evening we found ourselves all comfortably gathered on the piazza of the Hotel Christopher Columbus. Appen Jones insisted on making himself our host, and the story of our adventures was related again and again to an admiring audience, with the accompaniment of cigars and iced champagne. Only one detail was suppressed by common instinct. Both Clara and I felt that it would only raise needless comment to explain that Mr. and Mrs. Croydon had occupied separate encampments. Nor is it necessary to relate our safe and easy return to New York. Both Clara and I found Mr. and Mrs. Croydon delightful traveling companions, though perhaps we were not sorry when the moment came to say goodbye. The word goodbye, I remarked to Clara as we drove away, is always a painful one. Oddly enough, when I was hunting the humpo or humped buffalo of the Himalayas, do tell me about it, darling, whispered Clara as she nestled beside me in the cab. End of section 5 Recording by Tricia G.